place accountably. Good morning, everyone. Good to see so many people here this morning. This talk today is based on the um, Zen precept, meeting others on equal ground. At least that's the um, version of that precept that's been written by my friend and um, fellow teacher in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, Diane Rosetto, in her book, Waking Up to What You Do. Very good book to read as a resource book about the role of precepts in Zen. But in amusing myself um, in thinking of ways to um, present this, um, I came up with a metaphor about rosellas and magpies. So the title of it will be Rosellas and Magpies, Meeting Others on Equal Ground. The more traditional way that the, this um, precept is worded is not praising oneself and abusing others, or not praising oneself at the expense of others. It all has the same meaning to it. And why it's important to bring this aspect into Zen practice, um, and I've spoken about this many times here, but it's important just briefly to put it into context. Um, mindfulness has become very popular, taken from, from Buddhism as a way of assisting people in their lives in various kind of ways. And... Um, I was heartened at um, a meeting I went to, a seminar I went to recently um, in the Buddhism and Psychotherapy organisation I'm involved with, that um, everyone, every one of the presenters, including myself, um, was saying that it was the first wave of mindfulness was about just taking mindfulness out of Buddhism as a technique, you know, mindfulness in everyday life and meditation and valuing its stress reduction qualities and so on. But more and more, we get other therapists and members of the public um, contact, contacting our organisation because they say, well, I just don't want to know about mindfulness. I want to know about wisdom and I want to know about ethics. And it's those three things together which form the basis of any kind of Dharma practice. It's mindfulness but practised within the context of non-harming, not just non-harming, but cultivating good, for want of a better word, nurturing life, and also in the context of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And one of the very essential aspects of wisdom is understanding and also embodying the fact that everything is interdependent, interbeing. There is no separate self anywhere. Mm -hmm. Everything is made up of everything else. And that when we live life from that perspective it's very very different from a deluded a deluded um, perspective where everything is divided up into better and worse superior inferior so this precept addresses this very common human delusion of dividing the world up into better and worse and let's look at it in all its different variations because the precept is usually addressing the position that we get into when we get into the delusion of feeling like we're superior to others. Right? But there's also the other side of the delusion is that we get into thinking that we're inferior to others. They both come out of the same duality. 
right? So we need to look at both sides. And the other, the other side of it, the other dimension that we need to look at in terms of practice of everyday life, is what it's like to actually to see that we're getting stuck in a definition of ourselves as superior in one way or another, and what it's like to practice when we're on the receiving end of that, when someone relates, us, relates to us in a way that where they come across as being superior in some way. Because it's all a minefield of reactivity. And it's all based on conceptual thinking, comparison, comparing mind. It's more pervasive than perhaps we want to recognise or realise. And we're all caught up in it to an extent. And the degree that we're caught up in comparing mind, the more we will suffer. The more we're freed from comparing mind, the less we will suffer. So it's a very, very important part of, of practice. <clears throat> to put it in a cultural context too, um, this is the way human beings have always been, but it seems to be getting accentuated more, this sense of status-seeking, of um, people basing their self-worth on terms of being better than others is very different from just being who you are, being secure in who you are. And if we look at Diane's comment on this precept, this precept shines a light on the overt and subtle ways in which we use others as a yardstick to measure our self-worth by placing ourselves above or below others. All human beings to one degree or another, whether it's in the material, secular realm or the spiritual realm or the musical realm or whatever it might be, the sporting realm, get caught up in status-seeking, being better than others. And to the degree to which we're driven to do that is really based on our sense of insecurity, if we could see it. Because someone who really was secure in their self-worth really wouldn't need that outward affirmation all the time to make themselves feel okay. And we're all caught up in it, in one degree or another. And um, a lot of modern aspects of technology like social media, for instance, or just the media in general, can create pictures of happiness or perfection or whatever, some form of superiority, which are really quite delusional. But they have an impact on all of us, you know, in terms of that's something that we should be emulating or looked up to, whether it's in terms of body language, body image, you know, what car we drive, what suburb we live in, whatever it might be. It's out there and, it, and it's a force to be reckoned with. But to give you an idea of um, how delusional it can, can be, I know from my own personal experience in, in counselling that there's been some shows on television and in magazines lately which actually to do with related to people I know through counselling. And um, I'll keep it as broad as that. It's not like front page news, but it's prominent. And in each of these instances, these people are portrayed as leading wonderful, warm family lives where everything is kind of really lovely and they're on top of their game. And I know for a fact it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. 
It's not even average suffering. It's extreme suffering where a lot of hurt has been given out and a, hurt, a lot of hurt received. But someone from the outside looking at that would think, gee, these people lead really rich and wonderful lives. But it's not like that at all. And <clears throat> even with social media, and I'm not one who's against social media per se, I think it can be used wisely or unwisely. And like things like Facebook and so on can be just a way of people keeping in touch with one another and it's kind of like a, a manifestation of interbeing the internet in one way. But another way it can be used unwisely, and you, I hear incidents through counselling of people telling me that they see people putting on their Facebook happy pictures and comments like, I've got the most wonderful husband in the world and the most wonderful marriage and I'm so happy and there's all the smiling faces. And then, I, and then people who see me in counselling look at that stuff and they go, yeah, but my life is not like that. You know, other, other people must be leading these really wonderful lives and mine's not like that. But when you reflect on it, for someone to have to advertise to the world how wonderful their relationship is and so on, I must say I'm rather sceptical. <laughs> if you really were that happy, why would you need to do it? Mm -hmm. Why would you need to make the comparison and not think through the implications that that might have on other people? Plus, I don't think that everyone's relationship is so wonderful all the time anyway. Waxes and wanes. But that is the context. Um, that's the social context in which we live and we're bombarded with it at all times. Our challenge as a Dharma practitioner is to see through it, to not get caught up in it. Part of what is, what is part of our modern culture too is that we're driven to this expectation that we have to be the best in everything. And if we're not the best in everything and if we're not the winner, then there's something wrong with us. Mm -hmm. And there can only be so many winners, right? There's only one winner at a time. And um, <clears throat> it's a very good exercise, as I came across um, in a Buddhist psych psychotherapy book called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, of trying to challenge this idea of self-esteem or self-worth, which is based on being a winner, not a loser, better than anyone else faster than someone else, beautiful, more beautiful, more intelligent, more talented, whatever. That it's a really good exercise to go through various things you do in your life, particularly your things you have a, an investment in, and actually go, well, I'm actually average on that. You know, average on that. I'm a bit better than average on that one, a bit less than that one. But it's okay to be average, right? which nearly everyone is. Right? And it depends, it's important that things you, you, you look at. See, some things aren't, we don't have much of an ego investment in or emotional investment in. If someone said to me, you know, are you good at arranging flowers? Well, I go, don't really care. You know? um, but if I think of the things that I invest a lot of energy in, like learning to play a flute or sailing, then that, that might hook me a bit more, right? Yeah. right? Um, 
But if I look at it, I'm, I'm an average flute player and I'm an average sailor. There's some people who are more experienced and better than I am and there's some people who aren't. But what does it matter? What matters is when we define ourselves by the thing that we think that we're good at and we define ourselves by it. And by defining ourselves by it, we create a superior position over others, whether it's physical attractiveness, um, being really astute and really knowledgeable about a certain area of knowledge or science or whatever, or we're really particularly good at a sport or really good at a particular trade or whatever, as soon as we identify ourselves as being superior in some way because we've got that talent or whatever, we're in the world of delusion. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens all the time. Again, our challenge is to not get caught up in whether it's defining ourselves by something that we're good at um, or reacting to it when it's presented to us. Someone else is trying to be superior, getting out of the tangle. Um, I would assume, and I think it's a good assumption, that the kind of people who would come to a day like this are not caught up in the same kind of gross comparisons that a lot of people in our culture are. Like, I don't think anyone here is, is particularly caught up in, in racism or sexism, for instance. And if we are, we try to challenge our views on it. So it's more important that we're looking at some of the more subtle things rather than the more obvious gross things that we may get caught up in. But, for instance, in, in relationships, um, intimate relationships, friendships, with relatives, family and so on. Um, it's interesting to see the way that we can get up, we can get caught up in, in superiority in much more subtle ways. Like for instance, always taking the high moral ground, right? That where our motives are purer or whatever than, than someone else's. Really? Uh-huh. That means challenging. Or we always position ourselves as being the most generous person and the most giving or whatever, do you know, or the calmest or whatever, it's, it's making a virtue out of something which is fixed. And it might be true, we might be calmer, we might be more generous or whatever, but the litmus test as to whether we really have a sense of real genuine self-worth or not, is whether what happens when that virtue that we think that we have is not affirmed by the other? I'm the most giving, generous, selfless person, but if you don't acknowledge it in me, then I'll be really upset, resentful. That, that's an indication that we've defined ourselves in a delusional kind of way, and it's not actually, we're basing our self-worth on something which is not substantial. So, whenever we find ourselves being challenged by that, we get, react, we get reactive due to the way that we've defined ourselves in some superior way. That's the point of practice. Mm -hmm. This is about, this precept, meeting others on equal ground, is not about whether we're all equal in terms of the skills and talents and so on that we have, 
like I said before, there some people are better at certain skills than others. Now that's that's a fact. Mm -hmm. This preset really goes to the heart of valuing ourselves just as a human being. You know, to realise that all human beings are equal in essence. Mm -hmm. That no human being has any value greater than another. Mm -hmm rather than defining ourselves by certain skill sets. It's more obvious to see the way we relate to others through this superior position, um, but it's sometimes not so obvious to see how this precept relates to us if we're often comparing ourselves to others negatively, that we're less than others. Mm -hmm. But the degree to which we compare ourselves as being less than others, do you know, or worth less, or less worthy, if you really examine it, it doesn't look like it from the outside. It's not sort of overt narcissism, but it's covert narcissism. Mm -hmm. And if you really examine it in yourself, when you look at your feelings of worthlessness, if you look at it deeply enough, you'll see that there's a lot of me in there. There's a lot of ego investment in that position. And I've never actually met anyone, including myself, who is either stuck just in the superior position or the inferior position. Most people move, shift between the two. That's, they come as a pair, right? Anyone who can imagine themselves as being superior is trying not to be inferior. And anyone who is caught up in inferiority is still caught in comparison and they would like to be like the superior person. That's the tangle of the whole thing. These things go together as a pair. Um, someone who, is, who has you know, very strong feelings of worthlessness and think that they're less than others can subtly be holding on to um, covert superior positions to, well, at least I'm not arrogant like everyone else. Right? Or at least I'm not full of myself. You know? But, but if, we, if we invest in that feeling of worthlessness, we don't clearly see interconnectedness. We don't clearly see interbeing. We don't, we don't see our, our essence which is as worth as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. We've separated ourselves off, just like the superior person has separated themselves off. Which brings me to rosellas and magpies. <laughs> now rosellas, as we know, are very colourful birds. Do you know all those sort of pinks and bright greens and everything? And every time you see them sort of flittering through the trees or they come to land on your, on your balcony, you sort of you get that sense of just being sort of stunned by the, the colour and, you know, the, the vibrancy, the vividness of the, the colour which is there. Um, and then you get magpies, you know, who are black and white, black and white too, mm -hmm. yeah, black and white magpies. And, um, but can you imagine Rosella <laughs> sitting together on a branch and a tree and going, oh, we're so beautiful, aren't we? All of our bright colours, do you know, our lovely clothes that we have. 
We're not like those magpies over there, you know, the boring black and white magpies. You know. Can you, we can't imagine them doing that. Right? But then if you're on the magpie tree, you know, and, and you're hanging out with the other magpies, they'd sort of have a knowing look at it one another and they go, yeah, the black and white's really cool. <laughs> and do you know those rosellas when they try and sing? That craw, 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 they wouldn't be able to warble like we do. You know, they just look, they're show paintings, they look really good, but they can't really sing, you know. Can you imagine rosellas and magpies thinking that way? They don't have our human conceptual frameworks to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Rosellas are just rosellas, they're just colourful and beautiful, right? And magpies are just beautiful singers and warblers, it's just the way they are. There's no self-consciousness, there's no comparing, mm -hmm. they just do what they do. And they both have beauty and skills in various ways, but there's no overlay on the top of it. Or to use a Zen expression, they're not putting another head on top of their own. Even in the Dharma world, we could get caught up in it. Mm -hmm. Like the, the Tibetans wear all those colourful oranges and clothes, you know. They're the rosellas, remember, we're the magpies. <laughs> They've actually got a bit more wisdom than what they do. <laughs> We can all get caught up in superiority in, in spiritual and religious contexts too. That somehow we're superior for doing a certain kind of practice. Happens all the time. Between religions and within religions. And then sex break off from one another. Do you know? So even in the spiritual world, the spiritual world actually is a very, very seductive hiding place for superiority mm -hmm. and grandiosity. I belong to a certain spiritual sect, I do certain practices, I have certain insights, so I'll have this outward mask of being modest, but inside I really feel superior to everyone else. And that's what we need, that's the subtle stuff that we need to examine. Zen practice doesn't make us any better than anyone else, it doesn't make us morally superior or whatever. All it does is make us humble. And in that humility, paradoxically, there is a, a very grounded sense of well-being and inner confidence. Because we don't, we're no longer caught up in this hurly-burly world, world of better and worse. We're not blown around by the the eight winds of praise and blame, you know, and gain and fame and all of its opposites. We're no longer blown around by that. So it's just a position of humility. It's a position of freedom from that. And it's within that context, within that humble context, that we see that um, we're nothing and we're everything. We're nothing and we're everything. And when we embody that realisation, then it's wonderful being a Rosella and it's wonderful being a magpie. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>